0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, long-lived alien family that participated in the American Civil War, but on both sides, brother against brother, consider a revealing recipe for Euler macaroni Pasta that both sides enjoyed so much, but one called corn pone and the other macaroni. Mass markets rock your world with inertial moments, plus we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Hey, in the seven and a half years we've done the podcast, I've never asked for this, but uh, we would be extremely grateful if you would take a bit of time and go over to iTunes or, P- or Pocket Cast or Stitcher or wherever you get the podcast and give us a five-star rating. Maybe even say a couple of nice things there that will bring more people to the books and the authors that um, you know that we feature who are just great. We have an interesting conversation this time with uh, the Bain Marketing Director, Corinda Carfora. Every once in a while, you know, we like to step back from author and artist interviews, which are the meat of the podcasting, and, and get a glimpse at the inner workshop at the Elf Tree here at Bain Books. Corinda does many things here at Bain, but one of her most important tasks is to make sure that booksellers know about our books and readers, of which you are one, can therefore get their mitts on the work of their favorite authors. Corinda gives us some insight into how it was done, how it is done now, and how it might be done in the future as science fiction and fantasy publishing barrels ahead into the bright morning dazzle of the future. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. Now, here's the news. Hey, believe it or not, the number of reviews a book gets on Amazon and other online retailers nowadays gets processed by some of these bookseller algorithms and goes into determining orders on the author's next book. So leave those online reviews at the books and authors that you love. A happy reminder that July is Independence Month here at Bain and Bain eBooks, and it continues until the very end of the month. Nothing says independence like David Drake and the RCN series. So right now we're having this sale where um, you can save 28% on the latest RCN novel to clear away the shadows, which is a savings of $2 off the ebook. It's really, really good um, deal. Plus save $1 on the other ebooks in the RCN series. All of them have a dollar off. So that is $4.99 for the latest uh, RCN book to clear away the shadows. And that is $1 off all the other eBooks in the series, including uh, the second edition of With the Lightnings. Uh, The first edition, the first book in the series is in the Bain Free Library and you can just get that. But if you want the additional material David put in for the um, second edition, you can get that as well with this sale. The sale runs through July 31st. These prices are available anywhere that Bain eBooks are sold. Um, They are available on the the Bain eBooks website, which is at bain.com and you just go to those books and and you'll see them there. They're also available at Amazon. They'll they'll be reflected online everywhere. Um, So the July independence ebook sale and hey, it's David Drake, what's not to love? Now what's that sound? It's the stampede of the Bain July mass market paperbacks bursting out of the chute and into the reading arena, yahoo. First up is 1637, the Polish Maelstrom by Eric Flint. The Ottoman Empire was captured by Vienna and is now laying siege to the Austrian government in exile established in the city of Linz. Both the United States of Europe and the Kingdom of Bohemia have come to Austria's assistance, but everyone knows this is going to be a long and brutal struggle. Meanwhile, Poland is coming to a boil. Boy, things are coming to a boil everywhere in Central Europe as those American refugees from the future who came back in the West Virginia town of Grantville, showed up in 1632, and just began stirring the pot. Also out in mass market paperback format now is Noir Fatale, which is edited by Larry Correa and Casey Ezell. This is an all-new anthology, all the stories are new, containing a full spectrum of noir science fiction and fantasy, each incorporating the femme fatale character archetype. From straightforward, hard boiled detective stories to dark urban fantasy to the dirty secrets of futuristic science fiction, all have that hard, gritty feel. Stories by Larry Correa, Laura K. Hamilton, hey, David Weber, Casey Ezel, and more. And finally, out in mass market edition for July is Terra Nova, The Wars of Liberation, edited by Tom Kratman. Contained in this volume are tales of the history of mankind's future, first colony from the first failed attempt at colonization to the rise in crime to the rise in terrorism to its descent into widespread civil war and rebellion and ultimate liberation these are all stories set in tom Kratman's career series of course terra nova the wars of liberation edited by tom Kratman; noir fatale edited by larry korea and casey e zell and 1637 the polish maelstrom by eric flint are now out in mass market paperback format at booksellers everywhere. And don't forget, this means the ebook price comes down from $9.99 to $6.99 on all these books. When a book goes into mass market, we lower the ebook price. That really is a reason for a foot stomping, Bronco busting hoedown in your mind. I want to welcome Corinda Carfara to the podcast. Hey, Corinda.
2: Hey, Tony.
1: So, Corinda Carfer is what the hell is your title? Um, you do everything basically. <laughs> so, I,
2: I, I, I'm the uh, goddess of sales and marketing.
1: I see. <laughs> so, I mean, that which is all right. Sales and marketing is is is. is it, it sounds nebulous. There are so many things that that you also do your you're a liaison to, um, you know, Bain is distributed by Simon and Schuster, which not a lot of sometimes uh, readers don't realize. Uh, and we have so much to do with Simon and Schuster all the time. And, and you are our sort of our eyes and ears there as well. Um, and you just you're in New York and you have, the, you know, the New York beat that that keeps everything flowing with the uh, with the publishing world there um tell us a little bit about your background where you came from and and how you got to be um this avatar of bain in 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 the big city that you are today
2: uh, well i moved to new york in this i'm not gonna say because then i'll give away my age um when i first moved to new york i You're was
1: florida right
2: no, I'm from New Jersey. Actually, oh, you're
1: from New Jersey. Oh, you went to college in Florida.
2: I went to the University of Miami. I majored in music, and then I went to New York and studied at Carnegie Hall. And I was trying to break into showbiz, and which is uh, not an easy thing to do. Uh, I, I I did have some success later on, uh, working with Bruce Springsteen and uh, doing a, a number of off with things, and working with the Deliverance Band. However, it's tough to pay your rent in New York, so I started doing temp work, and I was temping at DC Comics. And after two weeks there, they offered me a full-time job. And, of course, my father wanted me to have some stability. (laughs) (laughs) I am like, "Eh, all right, I'll do it. And with the understanding with my boss that if I had to run out for an audition, that wouldn't be a problem, and I'd make up the hours, whatever. So, um, and as it turned out, I really enjoyed the working in the comic book business. It was at the beginning when graphic novels were just starting to happen. I had the opportunity to work with um, Miller and oh God, just a chunk of them uh, well, way back when. So it was a really interesting time to be in comic books. It's not the same anymore i remember san diego comic con was where people actually went to buy comic books um, so i know that's changed drastically now and then after dc i uh went on to adult publishing and i always feel like i have to clarify that it's not like adult films you know um, <laughs> and i started to work at simon and schuster um, and that's how i met jim bain I was a national account manager for uh, the Walden Books and B. Dalton at the time, and then Barnes & Noble. And I noticed that Bain's backlist was really strong, because we would get these gigantic green printouts every week, you know, the kind that you need a forklift. And I would go from Barnes & Noble, and I would go through and see what was selling. I thought, God, these books are doing really well. And as a distribution client, sometimes you are not uh, getting the attention necessarily that the in-house publishers would get. So, you know, I started circulating a memo among, uh, the salespeople, you know, just giving them, you know, sharing information with them. And then Jim asked me to be his liaison, uh, with Simon & Schuster while I was still working at Simon & Schuster. And then I left and went to Putnam and, uh, I was the vice president of sales there. And then I ran screaming from the building because I couldn't deal with the corporate environment. (laughs) Um, Because, you know, you get in the elevator and there's a publisher and the first thing they say is, how come my book didn't make the New York Times list? Um, Yeah, because it was a book about orbs, you know. Um, So then after I ran screaming from the building, I realized I had nowhere to go. And I thought, well, I'll figure it out. And I started to reach out to a lot of my publishing colleagues. And I sent Jim a letter saying, I am available if you want me to work with you. And that was 20 years ago. And so I've been doing that ever since. And having known uh, the Simon & Schuster um, idiosyncrasies and and a lot of the Simon & Schuster people, the personnel there, it was, uh, I want to say an easy transition, but you know i feel like i have a really good relationship with a lot of those people and we we can pull ourselves away from the distribution pack and we can get a little bit more notice a little more attention
1: and you being someone who's been around a long time and and you know just uh, just people here and there throughout the company and and throughout publishing it's really helpful for for bane authors and Bain readers ultimately mm-hmm. to uh, to have that sort of advocate there right
2: yeah, and I think, you know, knowing uh, knowing the people, knowing the list, uh, knowing the authors, you know, knowing all the players gives me the opportunity to try to, you know, when I say sales and marketing. I come up with the marketing plans for our books each season uh, and positioning them and giving the salespeople the tools they need to sell the books. Because having been a salesperson, I know what I needed when I went in to present titles, you know, I needed what I needed some background of the author and a book description, a 10 second elevator pitch, because now they only, they don't give you the entire afternoon to present a list they, you get five minutes uh, per book if you're lucky. So like I said, having the experience in sales, I believe has helped me get the tools to the salespeople and, you know, for example, just, uh, we were talking about earlier.
1: How does it work? Give us a, give us a rundown of, you know, a lot of people have no idea how books get to bookstores and how, how it works. That, I mean, the sales force of, of the company goes out and and sells to individual, uh, booksellers as well as these big distribution folks, Mm -hmm. uh, like Ingram and others. Uh, and there's so many books and only so much time. Um, right and so you know what these people the people that sell it and the people that are buying it need to know right that's what correct you know.
2: and well you know we go with the hit. our seasonal catalog uh yeah. several years ago a lot of the publishers decided they were going to get to do away with their printed catalogs i thought it was a mistake because every year i think 20 years ago, there might have been 100,000 books published in a year. Now there's close to 2 million. How do you set yourself apart? And how do you, again, giving the salespeople a tool? So when Simon decided to stop doing printed catalogs, we took the list of all of the stores and we divided it up. There were 250 stores and we called every one of them and said, do you still want a printed catalog? And... 85% 85% of them said yes. Now, mind you, yes, you can get the information off of Edelweiss, you can get the information, Simon has their whole database, but being able to turn to a page and look at something without having to go fish for it. You know, that's what I would say. I Don't don't make people go fish for information, give it to them.
1: So- um, Kind of old school that way, right? It is,
2: it is. And it, you know, when we were talking about this earlier too, grass, you know, the grassroots kind of stuff, the, I think people have got, become so accustomed to technology that we sometimes forget how important the one-on-one is and the the personal connection you have like with, you know, with a bookstore, like for example, Uncle Hugo's. i mean, I have a personal connection with the owner and because of that, we're able to do things for him that, uh, we probably could never do with a big chain and it's important for for us to keep these specialty stores viable. Um, you know we'll do things like get signed books by the authors and send them to Uncle Hugo and he sells them through his mail order business and you know those books aren't coming back and that's the other thing about book sales um, there's gross and net.
1: Well, many people don't realize that books are sold on consignment. Um, Yes. So I was just
2: yeah I was going to explain that there's there's yeah gross and net. Uh, You can ship a million copies. You what you do is you don't want to get a million and five back. You want to you know every and a lot of people don't know this. If you start reading a book and you don't like it, you can take it back to the store. I you know everyone I say that to they're all shocked like I I didn't know that. Well yeah everything is returnable um, unless you sell it on a non-returnable basis, but that's another, we don't normally do that. Yeah, uh, no, yeah. Yes. So
1: that's the American book selling for you right there. So the, the, we, we get our books are ordered and they go to the bookstores and then the ones that don't sell come back to us and we refund. The,
2: yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And we don't want that. Yes. We want the books to sell through Yeah. and, and, so the the first half of my job is to put the plans together to get the books sold in and then on the back end is what are we doing to focus to the consumer Um, there are a number of newsletters that we advertise Uh, we do uh, like uh, the website for stars and stripes we reach out to and then of course there's the library business which is a little different than the retail business library business act is actually very um what's the word i'm looking for uh lucrative for us because libraries don't generally send books back because they know what their they know who their readers are so they buy accordingly Um, so again focusing through the library distributors like baker and taylor uh, we can emphasize the books that we think will do well in the libraries
1: What? Uh, all right so we're we're an independent publisher um and but we are distributed by simon schuster so for a lot of you know the major channels we you're dealing with their salespeople. but what what as um what do we do differently as as independent um as an independent publisher this is i mean you're talking about some of it I mean, we We do our own sort of outreach, and because mm-hmm. we're science fiction and fantasy, we have some specialized uh, right. ways of doing it.
2: i I think it's because we're small enough to react quickly. We don't need to go through. 15 meetings and 23 memos to get something done. You know, somebody has an idea, we jump on a Zoom call or we email each other and say, hey, I need this to happen. As I said, you know, getting signed books to Uncle Hugo, um, I have to send one email to Libby. She sends an email to the authors and we get it done. If we had, if Random House had to do that, it would take 15 people and Nobody would know what was going on. No offense to Random House, but I think you know the advantage is that you can call
1: up Larry Currie and say, "Larry, get those books signed," which nobody right. can do at a big publishing. Company.
2: Right? Exactly, and I and I think the authors also appreciate that we we treat every single book as it's it's important, you know. Um, it doesn't matter. It could be our lead title. It could be a mass market reprint. Every book is important to us because we're not a big company, and we can't, you know, depend on, uh, you know, a, a Bruce Springsteen book to, you know, sell hundreds of thousands of copies or or something controversial. We have a core audience, and um, part of what I try to do is reach beyond just our fan base. You know, like I said, we were doing uh, Book Riot and they have a newsletter that goes out to, I think 78 or 80,000 devoted fans. So it's important, you know, like I said, it's important for us to, I don't wanna say micromanage, but because we're small, we can do that. You know, we can really make effect change quickly. And I think the bookstores appreciate that too. Uh, A Bookstore knows that if they can't get in touch with their rep, They can call me uh, or they can call the Bain office and they can get results. Uh, We try to limit the frustration level of booksellers. We want, we want to know them to know that we're partnering with them because we want them to sell our books as you know, as much as they want to sell books. You know, we're, we're all in this, it's, You know the books, book selling industry.
1: Personal touch. Yes. Yeah,
2: I think that you know it's important, especially now when, like I said, you know, people think because they can, you know, go on Facebook and social media that they're making a connection, but it really is not the same. It's not the same as you know having a person's name, uh, a real name, and you know, not necessarily a face, but just know that you can get something accomplished you know like vivian from forbidden planet in the uk she'll email me because she wants you know we're getting lois to sign some book plates for her so i think that that really works in our favor
1: yeah yeah well what um tell us uh some of your favorite uh tell us a story or two about (laughs) about bain and working at bain nothing uh you know (laughs) <laughs> I, don't like, know. Adult, you know, uh, I don't know
2: I, I can tell you I can tell you a, a, a funny story about Lex Luthor
1: <laughs> yeah sure
2: well when I was at DC Comics um, the CEO Jeanette Zahn decided that she wanted to change everyone's costume she wanted to update their wardrobe so she hired a designer named Marilee Flusser to come in and redo all of the uh, superheroes' costumes. So here we are at Comic-Con and some fan who was in his late 20s came over to me and he was outraged. He said, Lex Luthor would never wear anything like that. (laughs) And I thought, because you are such a close personal friend of Lex's, you know what he would wear or not wear. So, you know, fans can be funny. They can be funny. I don't know about been too many Bain stories because <laughs> except for the time I had to take the microphone away from Jim, Jim well, Bain. I mean,
1: because, I mean, you, you had a really uh, personal and friendly and great relationship with Jim, but, but also you, you, you know, I, I think you like, he used to go on at sales conferences because oh, he yes. the books so much, he would just keep talking about them and you were.
2: Yeah, exactly. He, <laughs> yeah, he would start, to present the books and as i said we have you know you might have 30 minutes to do a whole presentation so you can't spend 25 minutes on one book and then you've only got five minutes for the rest of the list but jim would start and he would keep going and i was looking at the clock so i would <laughs> grab the microphone from it because <laughs> one of his favorite expressions was oh but i digress so i took the microphone and i said you are digressing and then i just took over the whole presentation and then he as he he goes don't you ever do that to me again and i looked at him he goes okay you can do it again (laughs) if you want this if you want the salespeople to know about all the books you've got to squeeze it into that timeline but i understand the enthusiasm you know when you're talking about a book or you're talking about an author or a new series uh but yeah jim he didn't like to be confined to a certain time limit but so i had to keep him in line
1: Keep going yeah. well what um, now i've heard you say over and over again you, know, you really like print um
2: I, I like what
1: you like print um you like yes the, the physical book
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, yes what 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 kind of thoughts do you have on the future of print i mean you, you you're very uh, saying you're, you're upbeat about it a lot of times it, you cheer me up about it a lot of times. oh
2: <laughs> well just so you know print sales have been going up in spite of the pandemic, which is very good. I mean that's good, obviously ebooks have too, but I, i'm I find it um, I find it interesting that people still want to hold a book in their hands, which is what I want to do. And I think people also, in the beginning, when ebooks first came out, people were downloading dozens of books because they were so inexpensive, and then they realized, hey, I didn't read most of these. So I think just psychologically having a book on your shelf, um it just reminds you of you know what you read when you read it at a certain time um you know we go through different phases in our lives and and certain books become important to us for for whatever reason um so i mean when i look and i see a book that i read 25 years ago it reminds me of when i read it so i think there's that kind of psychological aspect of it Um, but also I think people too like to turn the page and they like to be able to go back and where they left off and not have to click through and you know And also we spend so much time in front of a screen all day long. And, you know, it's, it's just refreshing that you can read a book, look up, turn the page and you're not just zoning in on these electrical impulses that are bombarding you all day long. And so, yes, I know. I'm always optimistic about print because I think people still like books and until that next generation comes along that doesn't want to read anything i think you know there's still hope
1: (laughs) we can teach them to read sometime. so uh one other thing i want to now i don't know if you really want to talk about it but you're you're perhaps your best friend is fern michaels the what's it like to be like buddies with like an incredibly best-selling author who lives in mansions and stuff
2: well, she doesn't live in a mansion, but she has a beautiful spot in just outside of Charleston. I met her 20 um, something years ago. And well, that was what like, the five minutes I worked for Kensington and we hit it off. I mean, she's, I don't know how old, she's 17 years older than I am. So um, it's interesting to have a really good relationship with someone who's that much older that isn't your, your grandmother or your mother. Uh, and she's a huge animal lover as am i and that's how we bonded um i've spent a number of christmases with her and her family and she not this year but she usually will have a big party at her house she bought an old dilapidated plantation that was uh, up for sheriff sale and everyone thought she was out of her mind to pay hundred and fifty thousand dollars for it and then she pretty much gutted the inside and redid it and rebuilt the carriage houses in the back um and you know it's typical big wrap around porch and we sit on the out on the porch and drink beer (laughs) she's a very laid-back down-to-earth wonderful human being you know if you i joke about her her uniform she wears a white t-shirt blue jeans and white sneakers and that's what she wears every day she's really spunky she drives a range rover that is like 10 times too big for her um but she's like I said, she's very generous she's very funny um, i have a saying here i hope i'm not going to offend anyone but that she said to me one day she goes you just remember when you get up in the morning head up boobs out and ass in place <laughs> sounds like
1: a good way for men and women and, women right. and to go through life
2: that's right you know it's kind of like keep your head your head up and keep your posture and you know and keep your pants on
1: very cool um well uh, one other question uh what is what's the future of publishing Karinda? what the hell's gonna happen
2: you've been in this so
1: long and you, let me see you know, the so many positions of- i just think you're gonna know something that that the average person wouldn't know
2: Oh, well, I think, I think the big expensive books that publishers are paying for might go away. You know, when you hand out $5 million to someone just because you want the, the the publisher wants the publicity and you're not making money. And I think, unfortunately, the backlist or the midlist has really suffered as a result of that. Uh, not to pick on Simon or anyone else, but let's say you know they give someone five million dollars and they only sell a hundred thousand copies, um, they're not they're not getting back you know their uh, investment. And if they're not buying midlist books, and there's no one no way to build an author. So I think we may be going back to some of the the basics at some point. When somebody sits down and starts looking at the numbers and says, whoever wrote, a, you know, whatever her name is, uh, Amy Schumer, I think. Yeah, they they gave her like out, yeah. $8 million and she sold maybe 150,000 books. So I think book publishing is gonna become more discerning. I can only hope. I mean, that's that's my hope is that we start publishing, not us necessarily, but as a whole, publishing books people wanna read, not books that are just necessarily always publicity driven. I think that has been part of the problem with uh, the merging of these big companies or two co- like Putnam and Penguin merging and then Penguin being sucked up by Random House. I mean, they're, you know, and then they're they're part of a major conglomerate and now they look for vertical marketing. Let's say, for example, the people at Simon & Schuster were forced to publish books that tied in with MTV. But people who watch MTV are, are not necessarily going to go out and buy Snooky's book. So I think, you know, there's there are a lot of shifts going on now. A lot of people retired, a lot of people moved on. And my hope is that people who are in the position to publish and put together a publishing program are really looking at books as something that is, is necessary and also entertaining, without being schlock. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, that'll be good news for us because <laughs> we, <do, right? laughs> we do the story-driven stuff.
2: Right, and I think that's what people want. People want to be people want to be entertained. For example, I mean the Mary Trump book, um, or any of those books. Those people are on every talk show. By the time by the time the week is over, you don't need to buy the book you've heard all of the important salient points. So, um, yeah, so what's the point? You know, yes, you have a big spike the first week, which is mostly, I mean, that's usually the case with most books, the first two weeks are your best sales. But after that, you know, okay, publicity is over, and it's like on to the next one. But I think with a good book, like take take the Da Vinci Code, for example. I mean, I, I realize we're not in the same century when that came out, but it was word of mouth. And I think that is what is going to help sell books again, is people or recommending-
1: that's, that's what Weber, uh, that's how he, you know, there are just huge amount of people that just tell each other, you know, how much they like it. Exactly, so.
2: exactly, and like Larry Korea too. Sure. So I think, you know, I would much rather have a recommendation from someone I know and respect than just some influencer. I'm like, who are you influencing, you know? Uh, So I think that that's, you know, going to be the future. It might, some publishing companies, you know, they create an imprint, there's like the imprint du jour, uh, why they create imprints, and then two years later, those imprints are, you know, abandoned
1: not to be found uh, on the websites.
2: <laughs> yeah. So I think that, you know, if publishers want to stay in business, they have to get back to the business of publishing books and not just celebrity driven stuff.
1: Well, that sounds like a great place to end it. Um, okay. So, And I think that that is wisdom. We should all heed. And Well, and good. Thank God it's going to happen. I hope.
2: Yeah. So, well, uh, thank you. And uh, anything else you want to know? I don't know. Just fly by the seat of my pants.
1: <laughs> well, Corinda Carfora, who in New York is just known as Corinda. Everybody just knows who you are. <laughs> Thank you Thanks. so much for talking with us today.
2: Thank you, Tony. Enjoy the rest of your day. Stay safe out there.
1: Ciao. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington Series Masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor honor keeps her promise the solarian league for hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization but the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats they've decided the upstart star kingdom of manticore must be annihilated uncompromising courage honor harrington has worn the star kingdom's uniform for half a century very few no war, the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution, but now the mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves, uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Webber's Uncompromising Honor.
0: Ma'am, Rear Admiral Rosiak said sharply, the Mantis? He broke off, looking over his shoulder at Admiral Isatalo, and Isatalo gave him a choppy nod as the tactical plot went momentarily berserk. What the hell is that? she demanded. Some kind of jamming, Rosiak replied. I don't know how they're doing it, though. We can't see sh- That is, we can't see very much through all the garbage, but CIC's computers say it's coming from at least a couple of dozen sources. That means it has to be some kind of independent platform. I don't see how they could sustain emissions at this intensity for very long without burning out any emitter you could put into a drone, though, and- He paused again, pressing the fingers of his right hand against the earbug in his right ear and listening intently. His lips tightened, and he looked back at Isatalo. CIC doesn't think they are sustaining emissions for more than ten to fifteen seconds per platform, ma'am, but there are a lot of them, and they're running them in a cascade pattern. That's going to play hell with the attack bird seekers. Task Force 1027's upgraded cataphract seas were far superior to the Cataphracts Commodore Adrian Luft and the ill-fated People's Navy in exile had taken to disaster at the Battle of Congo. They were longer ranged, faster, equipped with heavier warheads, and fitted with seeking systems, which relied upon both better sensors and more effective onboard software. They were far more capable of thinking for themselves, and their ability to differentiate between false targets and real ones, and to penetrate enemy ECM was at least 30% better than Luft's had been. But they still had to see their targets, and thanks to the Dazzlers, they couldn't for several long, long seconds. Their electronic brains knew where to look when the interference cleared, however, and eventually it had to clear, since their targets had to be able to see them if they meant to intercept them. And so the cataphract's computers waited with uncaring and curious patience for the range to clear and let them find their targets once more. Decoys coming up now, Commander Solace said calmly, and the fusion powered Lorelei platforms keeping station on Sir Martin Lessum's cruisers and destroyers suddenly switched on their emitters. Powered by the same microfusion reactors that made Ghost Rider possible, Lorelei had a far higher energy budget than anyone else's ECM or EW platforms. With no need for beamed power from the ships they were protecting, however, the platforms could actually maneuver independently, mimicking moving starships almost perfectly. And even as the cruiser's stealth systems knocked back their emission signatures, the Lorelei's emitters deliberately enhanced theirs. They couldn't match the full power of a Saganami C or Saganami B's actual signature, but they could and did duplicate the signature of a Saganami C or Saganami B hiding under stealth, and there were dozens of them. The master plot aboard SLNS Fujoyant cleared as the jamming platforms went down at last, and Isatalo found herself leaning forward in her command chair, eyes narrowed as she watched the icons of the Manticorn ships reappear upon it. There they were and Ma'am, we're picking up- I see it, Bart. She cut Rosiak off and shook her head. Not quite the same thing as believing it, I'm afraid, she added harshly. The number of targets on her tactical plot had quintupled. From this range, not even her passive shipboard sensors could positively differentiate between the sudden rash of false targets and the real ones. Her shipboard sensors had lost lock thanks to the jamming, just as the cataphracts had, and the Mantis had used their temporary cloak of invisibility well. The energy budget on those decoys had to be much higher than the SLN's halo platforms, and they were clearly maneuvering independently, so they obviously weren't using beamed power from their motherships. However the Mantis were doing it, though, their decoys had come online when no one in TF-1027 could see a thing. There'd been no way to plot them and keep track of them as they came up. And once the jammers shut down, Frujoyant and her consorts found themselves trying and failing to tell which of the 60 cruisers on the plot were real and which were false. Even as she watched, numbers flickered under each of the cruiser icons, percentage values changing rapidly to reflect CIC's confidence as its analysis winnowed through the input to find the Manti starships once more. They were unlikely to accomplish that before her missiles reached attack range, unfortunately and there was no way the less capable sensors the missiles themselves mounted would be able to. That was disconcerting, and she glanced across at Milene Lamazana. The intelligence officer looked back steadily, and Isatalo made herself nod. Lamazana had warned her and Rosiak that all their data on Manti EW was sketchy. Problematic was the way she delicately put it, as they reviewed I's current guesstimates. Isatalo and Rosiak had tried hard to bear that in mind, but her intel officer had made it tactfully clear that she'd believed they were still underestimating the problem. Now, it would appear that even Lamazana had underestimated it. Commodore Lesson watched the plot with an expression which was rather calmer than he actually felt. Intellectually, he knew the 6,000 missiles sweeping towards his command were far less capable than a similar launch by the RMN's old Havenite opponents would have been. But 6,000 missiles were still 6,000 missiles and it looked like all of them had been directed at his heavy cruisers. What's to worry about, Martin, he thought sardonically. That's only about 400 birds per ship, isn't it? Neither Klaus Fleming nor any of his other ships mounted the Keyhole two platforms, which were the secret of Apollo. Without those, and without the Mark 23E control missiles, he couldn't have taken full advantage of the Mark 23s aboard David K. Brown, which was why he would decided against even trying to. More to the point at the moment, however, Thomas Wozniak couldn't manage the defensive engagement nearly as effectively as he might have with Keyhole 1 or Keyhole 2 available. His ability to hand off his interceptors between different control platforms was much more limited, and he couldn't establish direct telemetry links around the dead spots created by his own ship's impeller wedges. What he could do, however, was to spread his Ghost Rider drones as broadly as possible, and use their sensors to track the incoming fire. He could also, albeit with a certain degree of risk, roll ship to bring Klaus Fleming's or one of her consorts control links to bear on those dead zones, and update the counter-missile's targeting solutions. At the current range, the risk was small. As the range closed and time to roll back up disappeared, it could get risky indeed. Ghost Rider couldn't substitute for Keyhole's telemetry links to the CMs, but it could feed the cruiser's tactical section just fine, even in Klaus Fleming's current attitude. And the effect of the Lorelize was immediately obvious. At least a thousand of the incoming missile swarm peeled off, targeting one or another of the decoys. It was always possible some of them would reacquire one of his cruisers, or even lock on to one of the destroyers in default of its betters. That was unlikely, but unlikely things happened and missiles which reacquired were often more dangerous than missiles which had never lost lock in the first place. Missile defense was a game of probabilities, and one of the defenders' critical objectives was to assess those probabilities. Missile defense officers had only a limited number of counter-missiles and point-defense clusters, and those limited numbers were allocated dependent on the threat hierarchy established by analyzing the incoming fire. Those missiles most likely to hit were targeted first, working from most likely to least likely in descending order until the defenders ran out of CMs or PD, and missiles which had clearly lost lock were at the very end of the targeting queue. So when one of those missiles suddenly reacquired a target at the very last instant, there was seldom a counter-missile or point-defense cluster available to deal with it. On the other hand, Admiral Isatalo looked back at the plot just as the first wave of counter-missiles reached her oncoming attack. Then her jaw tightened in fresh consternation. Solarian interception probabilities on a first launch at maximum range against the cataphracts accompanying electronic warfare platforms and penetration aids would have been on the order of 10%. The manties did just a bit better than that. The first wave of crew 912.1 CMs ripped into the oncoming cataphracts. The improved Solarian missile drives were accompanied by better penetration aids than the RMN had anticipated, Based on Bugh's ship's analysis of the contents of Massimo Filoretta's magazines, the difference was slight but quantifiable, and Klaus Fleming CIC took due note of it for the squadron's after action report. In terms of the Mark 31 countermissile's performance, however, it was a negligible factor. 520 Manticorin CMs slammed into the oncoming cataphracts. A first-wave countermissile launch intercepting at maximum range was always the least accurate of a defensive engagement. That was true in this case as well, and the 520 Mark 31s intercepted only 152 of TF 1027's cataphracts. Just under three times the kill ratio Bartholo Rosiak had estimated. Jane Isatalo's eyes narrowed and fury burned in their depths. She would thought the Mantis' decision to remain at rest relative to the terminus had indicated they intended to translate out as soon as a serious attack came their way. And to be honest, she hadn't intended her first salvo as a serious attack. She had expected them to either disappear into hyper or take some significant damage from it, however. Not going to happen, Jane, she thought now, hands tightening on her command chair's armrests as the second wave of CMs, with more time to acquire their targets, intercepted 260 attack missiles. They're still feeding at least some telemetry to those damn things, she thought grimly. They have to be, but how in hell can they even see my birds through their friggin' wedges? The third wave intercepted 300 attack missiles, the fourth intercepted 393, and the fifth took down 471, a staggering 90.5% interception rate. All told, the Manticore counter missiles intercepted 1,183 cataphracts, almost 20% of her total launch. And like all good missile defense officers, the Mantis had concentrated on the fire most likely to find a target. They'd done a remarkably good job of ignoring the hundreds of cataphracts which veered off to chase decoys, or simply went off on a vector to God only knew where when they lost both sensor lock and telemetry. Still, of the 6,000 missiles she'd launched, just over 3,800 got past both the counter-missiles and the electronic countermeasures and came screaming in on the manticoran starships. 43 seconds, Commander Wozniak said flatly. Stand by point defense. Task Force 1027's missiles executed their programmed attack profiles, trying for look-down shots through the Manticoran sidewalls as they passed over or under their targets, or seeking the even more deadly down-the-throat or up-the-kilt attack positions, which were every tactician's dream. The attack birds were up to a closing velocity of 240,319 kps, 0.802c, as they howled down on their targets, and Isatalo smiled grimly. The SLN had stopped tweaking the software for its point-defense clusters, to deal with the higher closing rates of multi-stage missiles and completely replaced it instead. And TF-1027 had trained hard with the new systems in both sims and live-fire exercises against inert laser heads. The improvement was enormous. It just still wasn't anything Jane Isotalo would have called adequate against targets coming in at the sorts of velocities cataphracts could produce. She didn't much like that. On the other hand, physics played no favorites. At those velocities, an awful lot of her missiles were going to get through even the Manti's defenses.
1: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a glass of sunlight and bitters, plus a new musical scale with no G and a very mysterious high note of K, plus thanks, praise, and gratitude for Corinda Carferer, marketing director at Bain Books. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the
2: stars.